0: you glad he stayed on the cross. Amen? Amen. Well, we're in our uh, Bible Truth series still, and today we want to start off or kick off another section, and we're going to talk about the Jew for a while over the next few weeks and talk about the Jew. And so we want to turn to start with Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, and we're going to look at that. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, and we're going to kick things off there, and then we'll... um, I take it one step at a time. We'll see where we end up here. Um, this is just the first in the installment of a couple, and, um, wow, I feel a little like I'm a little hot today. Hello! <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll see. This is, this is long enough. We'll get through it, though. We'll, we'll move quickly tonight. My wife's in the nursery. Exodus chapter 3, <laughs> verse 10. Exodus chapter 3, verse 10 tonight. Let's go ahead and just take a look at that verse. Now, of course, we are going to be aware as we begin to read that verse. We're going to remember the circumstance and the situation around it. And, of course, it's Moses. And Moses have, has, um, is, is going to be meeting with God here. And uh, we know the children of Israel, of course, have been in a mess. They've been enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years now. And God is going to send Moses to them. But I want you to note Uh, how he refers to them here in the passage. And he says in chapter 3, verse 10, Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And again, he's talking about his people, and we know that uh, Abraham was basically the, the beginning, he's the beginning of the Jewish race, and now we have Israel here, and we're going to be talking about the Jew, and as you talk about the Jew, you can't help but talk about Israel, but we're going to note that Israel is being addressed here, and Israel is, is, is a, a, a specific group that's going to be followed throughout the Word of God. And uh, when we think about the Jewish race and we think about Israel as a whole, we've got to ask ourselves the question, you know, how, how do you account for the wonderful preservation of the Jewish race? I mean, here they are way back there, and they're enslaved in Egypt, and we know that as they come out, they are a nation, and he even calls them Israel here. And uh, a number of things are going to transpire and take place to Israel, but it just seems like they never go away. I mean, no matter what happens, they just don't go away. Um, With the crucifixion of Christ, it's amazing, as you see, how many ills or how many horrible things transpire uh, in the Jewish race. And, man, I mean, some bad things start up with the Jewish race the moment that they uh, cry crucify Him. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 27. This is going to kick everything off for them. It's really going to be a problem. We know through the Old Testament it was bad enough. They ran into some issues with other nations. They found themselves... Uh, you know, committing spiritual adultery uh, with other gods, and we know that God himself was not pleased with them, but boy, after they make this statement, after Matthew chapter 27, you're going to see the Jewish uh, race along with Israel itself, man, I'll tell you what, they are scattered abroad, and uh, what a mess. Notice what happens, what they say here in Matthew 27, 23. Uh, It says, and the governor said, why, what evil hath he done, speaking of Christ? But they cried out the more, saying, let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but that rather the tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person, see ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, his blood be upon us and on our children. I'm going to tell you what, that was the start of a lot of sorrows in the life and times of the Jewish people. Their cry, His blood be upon us and our children, has been literally fulfilled through the years. Uh, in A.D. 50, 30,000 were killed in Jerusalem in a conflict with the Romans. 30,000. 30,000. It's hard for us to wrap our mind around these numbers. You know, we, we go back to 9-11 and we talk about just a mere couple of thousands of people, and I say mere, compared to 30,000, that's a mere few thousand. We can't even wrap our minds around the kind of loss that they undertook and dealt with in their culture and their time. We, it's said that, um, I believe it's 50,000 troops died in Vietnam over the course of 10 years. You're looking at 30,000 people killed in one. Not only that, but you look at AD 66, and there's widespread oppression. Once again, it's 16 years later, and the Jewish people had kind of started to find their footing again, and because of the Roman governor of Judea putting so much pressure on them and making life so difficult, these people stand up in revolt. Nero sends Vaspian, according, and, and he's accompanying him with his son Titus, with an army of 60,000 men. After they seized the city for 47 days, 40,000 lives were lost, 40,000 of them. And yet Judea and Jerusalem were spared because Vaspian was called back to Rome by the death of Nero. However. When Vaspian was made king, he sent his son Titus to complete the takeover of the Holy Land and ultimately capture Jerusalem, because it would be in April of A.D. 70 that the Roman army, numbering 100,000 men, would march against Jerusalem. The city was surrounded at that time. We're talking about, now you've got to understand, this is 70 A.D., Jesus Christ likely died at anywhere from 30 to 36 A.D., 39 A.D., right in those 30-ish's. Some say that he was born 6 B.C. Some say he was born 2 B.C., you know, whatever you want to call it. But by 30 A.D., things are looking rough. Jesus Christ is on a cross pretty much. And it's 30 years later or so, 40 years now, and we've already had 30,000, and we've had 40,000. And now we've got A.D. 70 coming along here, And the Jewish people saying, all right, you let his blood be upon us and on our children. And God says, okay, let's go ahead and start dealing it out. And so now they're surrounded. They have a a, a city that has a wall that's tri-walled or triple-walled. It's defended by 90 towers. But they were poorly prepared to withstand this attack. The siege lasted a mere four months. They hurled huge stones against the massive walls. Within the city, mind you, there's such great famine that it was an every man for himself scenario. It became so bad that moms killed and cooked their own children, ate their own children. They fled from the city hoping to escape, but instead they found an even worse fate, and after being captured by Titus, they were crucified as a warning outside of the city walls. Don't you come outside those walls. We're going to kill you. We're going to make it worse than ever. Finally, on August the 5th, AD 70, the city was overrun, and Herod's temple was burned to the ground. They didn't intend on burning the temple to the ground. But, of course, you know how that goes. It just happened. Josephus, a historian that was living in that time, said that over 100 million, over 1 million people perished in that siege. 1 million while 97,000 were taken captive. I want you to think about that number, 1 million. Can you imagine if in one battle we lost 1 million Americans? And we have a nation of 330 what? 336 million people. I guarantee you there weren't that many people in that city. Literally almost everybody died. We can't wrap our mind around that kind of loss. Although the destruction of Jerusalem by Titus scattered the Jews far and wide by AD 135, about 65 years after the siege of Jerusalem, once again, the Jews would rise up and wage a revolt against the Roman power. And what a resilient people the Jews are. In a war lasting three and a half years, Palestine was laid waste and 580,000 people were killed. 580,000. And then they took a plowshare and literally ran it over Zion. And it fulfilled an 885-year prophecy in Micah 3.12. In Micah 3.12, the Bible says, Therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. Literally plowed as a field. That's what they did. They plowed it as a field. I can't even wrap my mind around that. 580,000. And in this case, it was over three and a half years. But again, the people of God, the Jewish people, tried crucify him, and sure enough, his blood was upon them and their children. It was a mess. They found themselves being persecuted and banished from nation after nation over the next 1,900 years. England, France, Germany, Spain, every single last one of them would turn against the Jew at some time or another. It wouldn't be till May of May 14, 1948. That Ben-Gurion, I'm going to hopefully say that correctly, Ben-Gurion, the head of the Jewish agency, proclaimed the establishment of the state of Israel. U.S. President Harry S. Truman recognized the new nation on that very same day. See, the plight of the Jew is well-documented, and the question is still, how do you account for the wonderful preservation of the Jewish race then? It seems like every nation on earth hated their guts. It seems like at every turn, somebody was trying to destroy them and ultimately ruin them, annihilate them, do away with them. And yet here they are to this day. See, the only way that we can probably or even possibly, I should say, account for this is that God has brought it about. That somehow God is at the foundation of it all, that he had some great work for them and he still has work for them in the future then. Why keep them around if there's nothing for them to do? God obviously sees a reason. And let me say, again, it is a miraculous thing to think that after all these years and after so much persecution, after being held back and, just, and, and people trying to wreck and ruin their nation and ultimately bring them to annihilation and extinction, they are still here today. That's all God. God raises up a man. Why not a nation? And still there are those that subscribe to another way of thinking, a thinking that's often referred to as replacement theology. It's known as supersessionism. It teaches that the church is the replacement for Israel. Now, why does God keep Israel around? Why did he keep the Jew around all these years if the church was simply going to replace them? The many promises made to Israel in the Bible are fulfilled in the Christian church, not in Israel. That's what replacement theology says. So all those promises that were given to them are now, we are privileged to have them in our court. They're for us. The many prophecies and promises to Israel are spiritualized in some cases or allegorized to mean that, to somehow say that God is blessing the church instead of Israel. Now we can't just, you know, you can't take it, verbatim because it's obvious pretty, pretty clearly Israel but we'll go ahead and say that those promises are an allegory they're somehow you know spiritualized to mean us well there's a lot of major problems that exist with that mentality in that particular view If Israel's been condemned by God and there's no future for the Jewish nation, how do you explain a couple things? Number one, the supernatural survival of the Jewish people like we've been talking about. Over 2,000 years, despite numerous attempts to destroy them, how do you explain that then? You say, well, it's coincidental. Really? How do we explain why and how Israel reappears as a nation in the 20th century after not existing for 1,900 years? I, I, again, I, I am just, I, I think that there's no other answer but that God is at the heart of all of it. The view that Israel and the church are different and distinct is clearly taught in the New Testament. Turn if you would to Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4. Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4. You can't possibly address this issue without looking at a number of verses, but I just want to read just one simple couple verses here. But I think as you read the Bible, it's pretty obvious that, things are, that the church is not Israel, and Israel is not the church. It says in Jeremiah chapter 30, verse 4, And these are the words that the Lord spake concerning Israel and concerning Judah. Now look at verse 7. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Now again, the context is Israel concerning Judah. Israel and concerning Judah. And he says, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. He's talking about Israel again. Where is it at? The tribulation period. God is dealing with Israel, which are the Jewish The Jewish people, basically, that's what we would associate them with. After the church is raptured out, Israel's left to endure the tribulation period. So basically speaking, there's no way that the church and and Israel are the same thing. Because Israel's still around and God's dealing with them in the tribulation while the church has already been taken out. The terms church and Israel are never used interchangeably in the Bible. You don't see that. You don't see the church being referred to as Israel or Israel being referred to as the church. It doesn't happen. So there are basically three different views concerning the relationship between church and Israel. You you see it in the the church, um, the, the idea is the church has replaced Israel, that we mentioned is replacement theology. Or the church is an expansion of Israel, that would be considered covenant theology, And that's often associated with Protestantism and Calvinism in many cases. And then the church is completely different and distinct from Israel. That's what the Bible preaches and teaches. And that is basically found in what we would call a system of of theology or of of interpretation of dispensationalism and the idea of premillennialism. And that's exactly what we believe. Now again, the, the... as we look at the, this, this, uh, this people, the Jews, there is something unique about them, something very different. And as you consider the word of God, you can't help but recognize them and see them throughout the scripture. And there's good reason for that as we're going to find here in just a few moments. Let's go ahead and have a quick word of prayer and let's consider three things that the Jewish race provided to the world. Three things that the Jewish race provided to the world, Father, bless us now in these next few minutes, be glorified in it, and Lord, help us, Father, to honor you as we seek, Father, to identify your truths in the Word of God. We love you, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen. First of all, they provided monotheism, monotheism. Again, the Jewish race was raised up to reaffirm and to teach that there was but one God, one God, monotheistic, one God. Now, in the days of Abraham, you go back there, you're going to note that the nations of the earth were given over to idolatry, universal idolatry. Everybody was involved in idolatry, pantheism or polytheism, one of those things. And as you think of it, you say, well, what's what's this pantheism stuff? Well, pantheism is a doctrine which identifies God with the universe or regards the universe as a manifestation of God. Let me just make it simpler. God is in all things created. He's just in everything created. You can see God in everything; it's created. Sadly enough, it's very similar to what we would consider Native American type culture. Even again, there's nothing. Listen, when when uh, you know uh, Chuck Norris is running around and he's playing, you know, um, uh, what's the what's the what's his great show? In the eyes of a ranger, the unsuspected stranger. Well, what's it? Walker, Texas Ranger. You know how weird some of those got toward the latter seasons with all that Indian crazy stuff that was going on? You know, there's little, there's, you know, running bull across the sky, and there's Walker that's getting so empowered by the spirits. You know what I mean? That stuff is, that's satanic. That stuff is satanic. You know, and I know Walker, he's a bad dude and all. And what was the, I don't, I can't remember what the joke is about him and COVID, but there's a good one out there, you know, something about COVID's afraid to something or other to him or something, but anyway, you know, but, but I mean, that's kind of pantheism in a sense. I mean, God is in all creation, all the, everything that's been created. And it it tolerates all kind of gods because God God is in everything. Polytheism is, is the idea of many gods or more than one God. You worship the worship of more than one God. A lot of cultures believe in that. Sadly enough, when our missionaries go to cultures like that, they have to be extremely careful that people don't just receive Christ and add him to their wall of gods. You know, they go into their little closet and they got all their little gods set up. And they then say, oh, now I have Jesus as my God too. So he's added to their gods. That's not how it works. When we come to Christ, he is the only God. And, and, and the Jewish, Jewish race provided the world with this thought, this idea, this, this truth of monotheism, one God. The concept of monotheism or one God is described, it's demanded by God in the law that he gave. Israel. We see it in Exodus. Turn to Exodus chapter 20. He makes it perfectly clear. There's only one God. You better be careful. There's only one. And this gets kind of tricky because then, you know, you get out there knocking doors or you're talking to family and friends and, you know, you, you know, well, you know, I, I believe in, and, and, you know, we're, we, we, we're all in the same, but we all believe in a higher power. Let me, let me tell you, AA, has their 12 steps and all, and, and they believe in a higher power. But if that higher power is not Jesus Christ, God Himself, my friend, it is the wrong higher power. You don't get to choose who the higher power is because God defines who the higher power is it's Him. Now listen, uh, I don't have a problem with a lot of the steps in the program, but I have a problem if you're permitting anyone and everyone to decide who their higher power is. Because it could be their mom, their dad, it could be their mother, their father, or, their, or should I say I just said that right, just different ways. Or it could be their aunt or uncle, it could be their husband or wife, it could be some other God. Little G God. There's no power there, unless it's demonic power. You say, that's pretty exclusive. Well, hold on. Let's see what God has to say about it. We believe the Bible's true. Amen. So let's see what he says. In Exodus 20, verse 3. Again, he's going to express and give the law. The children of Israel have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. You know, I mean, right before their, should I say, before their wilderness wanderings now. Now. And and he's preparing them. He's getting them ready. He wants to get them in the land. We're going to restate this law again prior to them entering the promised land 40 years later in in Deuteronomy chapter 5. But right here it's being expressed for the first time. And he's giving them the law now. He's gone up to Mount Sinai. They've been escaped out of, out of Egypt. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've done all of that, and here he is now. Here's the law. Here's what God has to say, and God starts off and says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make any, uh, unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers unto the children, unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. You get the idea that if you're worshiping idols, you don't like God a whole lot. And it's going to affect your generations. It's not good. Notice he says thou shalt have no other gods. Notice it's the little g-gods. There is no other God anyway. These are all false gods. They're made-up gods. They're make-believe. They're no different than the kind of gods that you made up or the kind of things you made up, I should say, when you were a little kid. It's like that little friend in the mirror. It's like that little friend in the glass. You've seen Anne of Green Gables, and there she is in in the the, the, uh, uh, little... Uh, that room there with all of her other little buddies and friends getting waiting to, for somebody to dop them out, and she's talking to her friend in the, in the glass. Can I tell you that friend is no more real than the gods that these idolaters served? For 2,000 years, B.C. 1921 to A.D. 30... No other people but the Jews believed the unity of God and taught it. They brought to the world monotheism. They did that. Anybody that believes that there's one God has it rooted in the Jewish faith. It started there. came about as a result. Right there in Exodus it began. And they really pushed it. It didn't start, God has always been in the beginning, God, we know that. But the world was a mess, just like it is today. And they were idolaters. Is it any wonder that the first inkling of man is to turn to idolatry? Why is it that we worship our husbands and wives above God? Because it's natural. Why do we worship sports above God? It's natural. Why do we worship our music above God? Why do we worship our personal comforts and ease above God? It's natural. Those are just little g-gods. That's all there is to it. You don't have to put a face on it even. You don't have to draw a picture of it. You don't have to make an image out of a piece of wood or stone in order to call it an idol. But it is natural and it is normal for mankind to look to someone or something other than God to worship. And just because you don't bow down to it doesn't mean we're not worshiping it. And so we have to be extremely careful. Thank you to the Jew. Thank you to that race and to God's people for introducing to us this idea of monotheism and allowing us the privilege and the opportunity to obey God, the God that created the universe. We're not at least bound by idolatry unless we choose to be. We think of idols like Baal. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 23, please. He's one of the fertility gods. He's a god of sun and storms. He's the supreme god of Canaan and the Phoenicia. Phoenicia, excuse me, I almost had that wrong. The Phoenicians. Phoenicia. Canaan, remember the children of Israel going into Canaan? Then they're going to face people that worship Baal. 2 Kings 23, verse 4. And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second order, and the keepers of the door. 2 Kings 23, 4. To bring forth out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, and for the grove, and for all the hosts of heaven, And he burned them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron and carried the ashes of them unto Bethel. Now, again, it seems to me that we've got some problems here. Uh, They're bringing some things out of the temple of the Lord. Saying, you ushers, I want you to carry a few things out, all right? There's a few things in the temple that don't belong. And what were those? Well, they were vessels that were made for Baal a false god, for the grove and for all the hosts of heaven. So he takes them out, he burns them without Jerusalem in the fields of Kidron, and he carries the ashes of them unto Bethel. And he put down the idolatrous priest whom the kings of Judah had ordained to burn incense in the high places in the cities of Judah and in the places round about Jerusalem, them also that burned incense unto Baal, to the sun, to the moon, and to the planets, and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the grove from the house of the Lord, Without Jerusalem under the Brook Kidron, and burned it at the Brook Kidron and stamped it, smalled a powder, and cast the powder thereon upon the graves of the children of the people. Man, now you talk about a visual. I mean, there's somebody here that's saying we're gonna stomp out idolatry. We want nothing at all to do with it ever again. Whew, man, they're doing it right. Baal. Baal had a major stronghold on so many nations in those days. Another one of those gods that we see throughout the scriptures that the children of Israel had to contend with and deal with was Ashtaroth. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10. We're going to see again now Ashtaroth was the supreme goddess of Canaan, basically a female counterpart to Baal. And in 1 Samuel 12 10, and they cried unto the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Balaam and Ashtaroth, but now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies and we'll serve thee. It's kind of funny. It's not till we get in a real predicament that we're in a real mess and our backs are up against the wall that many times it takes those things before we turn to God again. And in this case, they were serving Baal and Astaroth, literally worshiping idols, just like the people of the land in which they inhabited. And finally, now, because they're getting the wrong end of the stick in battle, they're going to turn to God Oh, you got to save us. And you know what? We're in the same boat so often, aren't we? This supreme goddess, the counterpart to Baal, Astaroth being served by God's people. And we say, man, them Israelites, how ignorant were they? How how out of touch with God must they have been? How wicked and how unrighteous they are. Okay. We think of Dagon. Dagon, that guy gave them a lot of trouble. (laughs) I had to throw that in. He's a fertility god as well. A lot of fertility going on here. He's the chief god of the Philistines. You remember the account. almost said story. It's not a story. It's an account. But nonetheless, let me read you 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. And when they of Ashdod arose early on the morrow, behold, Dagon was fallen upon his face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and set him in his place again. It's amazing when you have to actually pick your God back up. Couldn't do it on his own. And so they set him in his place again and when they arose early on the morning, the morrow morning, excuse me, behold, Dagon was fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon, both the palms of his hands were cut off upon the threshold. Only the stump of Dagon was left to him. I always liked that. Isn't that a great picture there? I mean, you talk about, you know, you know an in-your-face moment, you know. And let me tell you something. These, these gods were real to people. They were very, very real. And they felt that they were worth dying for. Isn't it sad to think that pagans that worship false gods that don't even exist, people that'll give their life to sports or give their life to another person or give their life to a cause that's not eternal, they're more devoted, more committed to their God than we are? That's sad when we think about that. And I'm not just talking to you, I'm talking to me. Molech our last one we'll talk about at least the gods He's a calf, right? He's an or an ox like figure. A man with the head of a bull with arms outstretched. His body basically is a furnace for the purpose of roasting babies. He's the god of human sacrifice. And again, he was worshipped by a number of pagan cultures and nations turn to Leviticus chapter 20 verse 2 Leviticus chapter 20 verse 2 you know humanity is really no different the nature of man hasn't changed a lick we somehow think that we're more cultured than they were because we don't burn our children no we just murder them it's called same difference. I mean, we like to do, we don't want to talk about it in such a critical, negative, and very angry way, but let me tell you something, there's nothing polite, nor is there anything kind about murder. You know, maybe we need to be a little more forceful with these issues, because it just seems as believers, we have taken a step backwards and down and said, we don't want anyone to think that we're upset with anyone. What? Upset with people killing babies? I think we should be upset about that. I think we should be upset about things like uh, assisted suicide and all these other things that are going on where we're trying to just see people's lives end early without God's approval. That's God's business. We have an appointment and you say, well, then God knew somebody was going to help somebody die. Well, I still think that we ought to leave that up to God. We're so cultured and we're so advanced today that, well, these kind of things look different, but they're really just the same thing. Leviticus 20, verse 2 again, Thou shalt say to the children of Israel, Whosoever he be of the children of Israel, of the strangers, or of the strangers that sojourn in Israel, that giveth any of his seed unto Molech, he shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. <clears throat> What's to happen if you burn your child or give your child to the idol Molech and allow him to be burned up? Well, your fate is that the rest of the people stone you to death. I sure wish I lived back in those days. Really? I think you live in a pretty good one under grace. Let me tell you, you're very fortunate. So am I. But I want you to understand God's position on these things. We can never dismiss God's position. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 3. And I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he hath given of his seed unto Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. There is something about the sanctity of life that reflects positively on God who gave it. When you start messing with life and taking it without a cause, you're messing with God. Verse four, and if the people of the land, this is interesting now, watch this. If the people of the land do any ways hide their eyes from the man when he giveth his seed unto Molech and kill him not, what is he saying? You see somebody go up and offer their child to Molech and you close your eyes to it. You turn your back to it. You pretend you didn't see it at all. I'm not getting involved God dismisses it and says, well, you have a family to take care of. You're responsible for your own. No, look what happens. Then will I set my face against that man and against his family and will cut him off and all that go a whoring after him to commit whoredom with Molech from among their people. He says, the whole family is going to pay desperately for this one. Wow. Wow. You know, these pagan deities, they ruled the day, and yet not one of them was real. Not a one. And you know, there's no real gods except for one. Jehovah God in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, these three are one. As long-suffering as God can be, His patience wore thin when He watched His people commit such abominations. The Jews have been the teachers of monotheism to all the nations. And no Gentile nation, not one, that's untouched by Jewish influence has ever become monotheistic. Not one. So we have to give a nod to the Jew and say thank you for revealing to us, the Gentiles, the truth of a of one God. I wonder as we close today, we're only going to get through that right now, but I wonder if you did an evaluation in your life right now, literally just took a moment to evaluate your life, and not just your life, but your your attitude, your actions, your outlook. I wonder, is there anything more important to you than obedience to Him. Because if there is, there's a good chance that becomes your God or is your God. I mean, that's just a reality of life. How many young people that have gone off to college have thrown away their faith so that they could get through school? I got to work, I got to go to school, I got to do all this. You say, how do you know that? I'm the singles leader, I know how that works. I see it all the time. How many parents... How many young people got married and once they got married, they threw their God off? Because I got a husband, I got a wife now, I got responsibilities. What happened to your faith? What happened to your relationship to the Lord? How many adults that go through life possibly being divorced or lose a spouse and then ultimately leave God behind? For what? How do we do that if we truly believe what we say we believe? How is it that we get to a place where ultimately we discard God for our sports? Look, at they play sports on Sundays. I was talking to Josh the other day, and he's telling me that how last year the kids all played on Saturdays, this year they all play on Sundays. And now those kids, they don't know any different, but the culture, the world Has them playing on Sunday. That means they can't worship the God they serve. Let me ask you something. If your child wanted to play a sport and it meant that they could not be in church on Sundays, what would you do? Would you allow them to worship their God? Or God? You say, that's a pretty strong stand. I don't know. I think it's a biblical one. See, I personally believe there's not one sport in the world that should trump my relationship with God. And although I'm not perfect at it, and I too have failed in my life to put God first in so many ways, I guarantee you this, when I've done that, it's hurt me and others around me. There's not one young person that doesn't need to see your total and complete devotion to God not in a self righteous you know condemning condemn condemning type of mentality toward the world not like that i'm not talking about well everybody else is wicked and sinful and i at least am serving the lord We're not talking about that mentality. We're talking about, I love Jesus Christ and my life reflects that. I'm going to be in my Bible. I'm going to be in prayer. I'm going to be at the prayer meetings. I'm going to be out. So I'm going to do the things God's called us to do as believers. I'm going to make sure I'm in my place and I want you to know it's real in my life. It's real in our marriage. It's real in our home. That's what will make the difference in your child's life. Not just simply, I'm a Christian and we go when it's convenient. We participate when it works well on our schedule. Preacher, you're the best. You're so awesome, we can't get enough of you. Well, I'm glad that's the case. And I'm going to believe that. I'm going to take a positive high road. But let's be honest, it's not easy to live our lives like that. Because so many people and things, and the devil even, is fighting for our time and our attention and our best. Let's give God our best. Let's remember that he is one God. There is no other God. So let's not serve any other gods. Let's really take note of our life and our priorities and ensure that they align with that thought, one God. And let's make sure they're directed toward him. And you will never regret that, neither will I, especially when we face God one day in eternity.